Welcome to Talking Fanfic. This is Sarah, aka Story Shark 2005. I've got a great episode today where me and my partner in crime, Elise51, talk about a story that I have really enjoyed. It's called Who is Like God? It's by an author called A Lazy Panda. And um, yeah, she wasn't able to be on the podcast, but I sent her a bunch of questions that she answers, and we just discussed the episode for about an hour, I think. And um, it's a good time. At the end of the episode, we do devolve into sort of DC Comics, Superman, Batman discussion. So if you like, stick around for that. But the discussion on Who's Like God is about an hour. I love this fic. If you are somebody trying to get into fanfic or you want to get your friends into fanfic and maybe they're not necessarily romance readers, this is one of the more unique stories we have that I've read in the fandom. It's kind of a magical realism fantasy. You could even put it a bit in the horror genre. We talk about that. Um, if you like Guillermo del Toro, that was a huge influence on the author. So it, it's such a great story. It's not finished. I would recommend that you read it now. I uh, am good friends with the author and she's always messaging me about it. So I know she's actively working on the next chapter and it's probably only got a couple chapters left to the conclusion. So treat yourself, get on board. You uh, won't regret it. It's a ton of fun. Just a couple other things in this introduction. First of all, the season three trailer came out yesterday, well, two days ago, something like that. Um, so if you haven't watched it, first of all, where you been? I know I've been out of touch and uh, I still managed to watch the trailer and it was so great. So um, there's a ton of discussion all over Instagram and social media. The Cobra Kai Companion Facebook group, of course, head there if you want to talk about the trailer or um, Peter's always up on the news and he's got a great Instagram, the Cobra Kai Companion uh, Instagram page. Those guys go live. I think that night that the trailer was released, they went live. So Peter and Bree discussed a bunch. Um, Cobra Kai Kid also did a YouTube live video. Uh, Watch Party, I think, did a video. We've got such great content creators in this fandom. So yeah, just YouTube, Cobra Kai, season three trailers. Um, as far as on the fan fiction front, as you guys know, fandom is blowing up. Here are just real quick some of the numbers. Uh, as of tonight, we've got 721 works under the Cobra Kai fandom tag, which is fucking crazy. And let me tell you exactly why. So I did some date filtering. I filtered from 2017, uh, back before the show was on, through the Netflix release. That was August 28th, 2020. So from 2017 to the day before, on August 27th, we had 322 works. So it's a period of about two years from the Netflix release date until now, 399. That's four months so in two years, we put out 322 stories. The show hit Netflix. And in four months, we put out more than we had in two years. 399. It's fucking crazy, dude. So just congratulations to all of you authors and, uh, and also the fan arts out there. You know, I mean, it's all over Tumblr, but we don't really get good metrics on fan art. But we've got great fan artists in this fandom as well. As a writer, I'm so proud of everybody. Writing is really hard. So that's incredible, the production and the influx of new authors and new readers. Um, and everybody's feeling the love. I know we're all getting more kudos and comments than we ever have before. So uh, thank you also just to all you readers out there. If you're not a writer and you're a reader, just thank you for reading. And we really appreciate it when you guys give us kudos and comments because it keeps us going. 
It's incredibly motivating for writers and fan fiction to get feedback. So if you're a reader, thank you. <laughs> like if this fandom was just writers, no one would get any attention because we're all self-absorbed narcissists uh, and we'd only be reading our own work. Not totally true, but you know what I mean. So we need readers. So thank you so much, uh, all you readers out there. The uh, award season, I was also going to say a quick note about this. I don't have a ton of details because we're going to have to figure this out. So the Quiver, who is kind of a group of readers and writers and fan artists that found each other on Tumblr in 2018 and then moved to Discord. It's a fun community. And I know there's probably other Cobra Kai discords out there, but um, this is the Cobra Kai Fan Fiction Writers Retreat group. So these are the guys I know, and they're who I refer to as the Quiver. We all kind of just as a group put on a Cobra Kai Fan Fiction Awards. Um, Last year, I think we did the ceremony in March. And uh, we basically do the previous year's fanfic works. So this year, the 2021 awards, we'll be looking at the fics posted in 2020. So it's kind of like the Oscars. But it used to, you know, we were just such a small fandom. There was like 15 of us maybe participating last year. I think we were, I did the numbers, we were looking at about 114 works, I think, that were on the reading list last year. And then we narrowed that down by nominations and then voted. And we kind of all sort of did um, Tumblr polls and spreadsheets. This year, there's going to be over 508 works and counting that are going to qualify for awards. So we're going to probably have to do something different. Um, If you come from another fandom and you've maybe successfully held an awards let me know on Tumblr and, you know, maybe we can use some of your ideas. I think like a Google Forms polling system could be a lot more useful. And, but anyway, all the work uh, last year and the year before was spread over a few people, but the Empress R and Bitka, Out for a Walk Bitka, you also know her from Bitka's fandom caps on Tumblr. Those two ladies did a lot of the coordinating and organizing. So uh, message them or message me and I'll get your word over to them. If you have some advice for us, it was really fun. We had the ceremony on Discord and, you know, people voted and the top voted works. You know, your fellow nominees made banners for the winners. So it was really fun. I just basically want to talk about it now to kind of like raise awareness. And if you're interested in helping, message me or MP or Bitka on Tumblr. And we'll get you into the Discord chat. And there's a specific room for awards organizations. So I'm sure we could use all the help we can get. Um, Great. I think that's it. So enjoy the episode. Uh, Check out the show notes. There's a bunch of fun stuff. There's like a Guillermo del Toro video I referenced. There's some music stuff. There's a link to the work, Who is Like God. So it's about an hour. So check it out. And stick around for the comic book talk after. We have a lot of fun. We complain about superhero movies and we talk about the ones that we love as well. So anyway, thanks for uh, listening and enjoy. about that wait what oh i just was laughing at the the, the swanging and banging shirt oh yeah <laughs> the houston the houston trastros 
Yes, I'm conflicted about wearing the shirts because it makes me sad as much as it makes me laugh. So, Yes, if um, any of you don't know, I don't know if we'll include this in the podcast, but the uh, Houston Trastros slash Astros, I know, were caught um, cheating during the, uh, was it the 2018 season? 20, well, they won the World Series in 2017. So yeah, I believe 2017 season, yeah. Yes, yeah, signaling pitching surrounding the um the uh brilliant scheme of but simple scheme of banging on a trash can to signal a batter when a fastball or a breaking ball is coming. Yeah. So they got caught doing that. Somebody apparently heard uh somebody bashing a trash can with a baseball bat in the dugout or some somewhere in inside There's some clips where it's pretty obvious i remember uh i discovered the podcast talk and baseball because john boy media were kind of the ones that broke that story like he was just watching replays and could hear it like on the recorded video yeah. that kind of launched well it gave john boy a much more attention and now he's huge in baseball but yeah Anyway, so we got these t-shirts that uh, make fun of that. Swangin' and bangin'. Swangin' and bangin'. I lived in Houston for two years, and uh, the sad thing is the Houston Astros, especially that team with Altuve, they're kind of a sweetheart team, and we're kind of like underdogs for a while, and <sighs> but they're just like kind of beloved, and to have that revealed, just like blatant cheating, it's, it's really sad, so... I remember being in the Hy-Vee Market Grill, I think when you were bartending, um, <laughs> and watching. Uh, it was either a playoff game or one of the World Series games. And I remember watching Altuve and just like, that guy was so much fun to watch because he's really short, which is weird for yeah. a baseball player. He's like, I don't know, he's like 5'8 or something or something ridiculous. Yeah. But yeah, that's sad. It reminds me of like if the 2014 Royals had for some reason been caught cheating. Like that was my yeah. sweetheart team. I had some serious mental health issues if I found out that they were cheating. Holy shit. Yeah, that team. Anyway, this is talking fanfic, everybody. So we haven't done an episode for a while. So uh, thanks for tuning in. I brought Laura. Uh, sorry. <laughs> should I use your name or not? I should... Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. I guess I did last time. Confusing not too. So, yep. Yep. You're outed to the world. Um, yeah. I brought my sister Laura on just because she's fun to talk to, and I figured it would be less boring than just me talking. Don't set the bar too high. Oh. <laughs> I think people find this entertaining. We'll see. So this week I have a story that I've read maybe like four or five times by an author I absolutely love, um, A Lazy Panda, who some of you may remember as Gia467. She just changed her username. So she's not coming on the podcast today, but I've got uh, some questions that I sent her and that she answered. And we're just going to kind of go through and talk about this story. So so yeah, so I had Laura read it because she hadn't read it before. Mm-hmm. I had read some other stuff that she had written and really liked, but this one <clears throat> is kind of its own monster. Yeah, it's very different. It's like the most AU Cobra Kai fic that I've read, I think. Mm -hmm. I think maybe. I mean, there's so, I don't know. It just depends on how you define AU. I think it's one of the most unique stories in the fandom. Yes, certainly. The, the magical elements will set it apart. Yeah, it's definitely. So it's called Who is Like God, which is a unique title. I remember, I think, so I made friends with Gia as soon as I got into the fandom and I had read some of her other stuff too. And I loved her writing. Uh, and this one I was not one of the first ones I read. I think because 
it's not like a shipping story. You didn't read it because it's not LaRusso. Exactly. It's not LaRusso. And I, I would always go on to AO3 and I just... Immediately set your filters. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I think this is one of the things I hope this podcast does for people is that they pick up this story because uh, I think you and I can talk about this. We pretty much do that all the time. Like we find this ship that we want to read <laughs> and we just... Yeah. Put the filters on and we don't see anything else. And I think a lot of people get into that. Yeah, you're like, if it's not my pairing, I'm definitely not interested. Yeah, just like, (laughs) don't even talk to me. You put your blinders on and you're like, that's what I'm going to read. That's what I'm today. Which is sort of uh, sad because you miss a lot of great stuff. It is. Yeah. But, you know, like sometimes there's something about the pairing that you like and that's what you're shopping for. But, um, yeah, I wouldn't have picked this up. It's probably uh, why it's sadly... <clears throat> maybe less uh, read than it could be. We often look for those romantic pairings that we're wanting to read first. Yeah. So just to kind of set the stage, so this is a story that centers on Miguel. So if you're a Miguel fan, you're going to love this one. It's set during season two as kind of an alternate. Um, it kind of parallels the events of season two. And in fact, she uses season two's storyline as kind of an anchor for the plot of this as well. But then it had, there, there's some alternate events that happen as well as this kind of fantasy world that she weaves in and out. But it takes place over the summer, just like season two. And uh, genre wise, I would call it a uh, fantasy AU. Like magical realism. Yeah, magical realism. That, that's what I first, and we'll talk about it later, but that, I think that's one of the most interesting things is, you know, or maybe one of the most or least interesting questions we'll see uh, is what is real and what is not real. Exactly. Is Miguel crazy? Is he crazy or is he not? So if you're listening to this, you probably haven't read this story because as Laura said, it is, uh, in my opinion, underread. So we're going to talk about it, but we'll, we're not going to go through it like scene by scene because we want you to read it. Um, but we are going to definitely talk about it. So you can either go and uh, yeah, it would be long. It's a long, I mean, it's a work in progress also, I should mention. So it's not finished yet, um, but I hope it will be because I love it. It's 60,000 words, uh, seven chapters right now. So um, yeah, going through scene by scene would be too much. So the genre is magical realism or almost kind of a... A magical mystery. Yeah, and it's got a real undercurrent of like violence, kind of. It's yeah. um, unsettled, unsettledness, or yeah, it's very unsettled. It feels very unsettled. Um, there's kind mm-hmm. of a dread, or so I think in the Instagram post uh, introducing the story, I mentioned something about horror elements, and it's not exactly yeah. a horror story, but it sort of feels that way. Yes. So yeah, so we can just kind of start talking about, uh, and I do have some questions that I'll try and strategically pick out that I asked Gia. So mm-hmm. yeah, one of the big things we can start with is um, how this, if you've ever seen the movie um, Pan's Labyrinth, if you like that yeah. movie, you will love this. And there are some deliberate kind of scenes that are similar uh, to Pan's Labyrinth, um, but it's certainly not the same story, but there are some shared elements but yeah, kind of this uh, elevated reality fantasy world. So the story just kind of starts out with Miguel and Hawk and they're riding their bikes. We'll talk about in a second, just like the theme of heat. Yeah, it's like that. I feel like there's a lot of like movies where it starts out and the, the background of it is like the, the weather's really just shitty. And then there's a lot like in the summertime, things seem to slow down. I think especially when you're younger. Yeah. I think for me, though, the magical stuff's a little tough to get into. 
Or, or it's at least why I hadn't approached a story before, because I'm like, oh, it's magical, so it's not real, so I, I'm not going to read it then. But the scenes and the interactions of the characters are all very real. Yeah, so it starts out, and uh, the weather's hot, and that goes along with, in Cobra Kai, you have this cruel summer, um, so it's oh, a summer yeah. story. And like you were saying, uh, that sort of the days are longer, and the heat is sort of the suppressive yeah. pressure and there's all kinds of stressors that start and i think by the end of chapter three we get all of them but in the beginning um it's like the very first sentence is the first time he noticed it he was more preoccupied with the heat how hot his dark hair got under all the glaring sunlight and um miguel and hawk are on this bike ride and they're and they're they bike out to this weird cabin that hawk's family owns and so you immediately get outside the city limits into this uh, kind of creepy cabin creepy cabin so you're you're in the you're in nature you're away from the valley so it already feels very different from the beginning um, I guess you get kind of coyote creek in the show but pretty much everything's like in the valley uh, and anchored in sort of the safety of mm-hmm. yeah yeah and so um only good things happen in creepy cabins. Yes, no, no good things. Uh, and this isn't exactly like there's no horror stuff that happens, but you do get the introduction of the uh, fairy character that is introduced uh, not in this exact scene, but you in the second scene where I think that is that the party. Yeah, it's at the party. I think he goes off a little bit into the trees and he's trying to avoid this girl that's like trying to hit on him or something. Oh, yeah. But that's where you get this little fairy creature, which is similar to a character in Pan's Labyrinth. So getting back to Pan's Labyrinth with Guillermo del Toro, I had you watch a little video before we started recording. Yes, that helps a lot. And even, like, I haven't seen Pan's Labyrinth, I think, since it came out in theaters. It was that long ago for me. But at the same time, those images really stick with you. That movie is crazy and a little disturbing, but... I mean, a great, great film. And it just popped into my head as I was reading this anyway. So then when you sent that clip, that was really good. But I think it immediately puts you at a more interesting angle for the question of, oh, is this all this stuff real or not? And he mentions that to him, Pan's Labyrinth, the magical elements in there, to him are all real, but not in the way we think of as, quote unquote, you know, big R real. So his point is, if they have effects on you, like I think about it like as someone who reads about fictional characters all the time. And if what we read affects us, isn't that a kind of realness about it? Yeah. Or it shapes you in a different way. Just like your interactions with people shape you in a certain way. If fictional characters and fictional worlds affect you, that's kind of real. So I don't know, that might be more useful for approaching. Like, I don't know what direction she's going to take with, is this all ultimately in Miguel's head or what? Or if that's even an issue for the author. But I, I think that makes it more useful for me to think about yeah and she let's see i asked her about that yeah so what so one of the questions that i asked her is the story structure consists a lot of alternating scenes some rooted in reality and alternate canon scenes and then interspersed with miguel in a more magical or fantastical world did you know you wanted some separation between quote real and the quote fantasy world scenes and her answer is I always knew that I wanted separation since the idea of it mixing is off-putting to me for numerous reasons. In order for it to be about Miguel and his experiences, I needed to draw a distinction between real life and his fantasy life, but I also tend to keep the line thinner than I should. There's a bit of overlap for confusion's sake. 
I enjoy the idea that the worlds are only a little ways apart and can be explored in the right context. It's the idea that Miguel's fantasy world is within everyone else's reality. Hmm. Yeah, so there is some separation there, but there's also ambiguity. And she does that on purpose. Let me find another question that I asked. Yeah, I mean, at least in some way, he like with the mandrake he picks out. I mean, Carmen sees that. I don't know if she sees what Miguel saw, but she picks up something that he puts below the bed. Yeah, and something that um, Guillermo del Toro mentioned in that interview. Basically, I mean, he talks about how the character in Pan's Labyrinth, I think her name is Ophelia, that her decisions within the movie, and when she's in the fantasy world, those changes do affect the outcome in the real world. And that goes along with what you were saying about fantasy being, in a way, a different kind of reality, but just as meaningful and uh, effective as what we consider real. And that line is definitely blurred in children. Yes, the stories that are most vivid for us in our lives are usually the stories we read as children. Yeah, and fairy tales. And a fairy tale is something that you usually encounter first as a child, and mm-hmm. they and they stick with you. He's, he also says in that video uh, about Pan's Labyrinth, but it applies here. He said, it's a movie that I wanted to feel like it's a fairy tale that you've heard before, a very ancient fairy tale that has been repeated after many generations. I didn't want it to feel new. I wanted it to feel eternal, like it came from a long, long oral tradition, and it has that power. So something that you've heard before, something probably from childhood. Miguel's 15 here, and I know that she did uh, consider making him younger. That I think she talks about that in another question. I feel like if Miguel was younger, we'd all assume that this was all in his head. So to make him a teenager makes it even more questionable, because you're like, well, he can't be imagining everything. Which I don't think he is. Yeah, that's true. I like that, that he's a teenager, so it lends more credentials to this crazy thing that shouldn't be real, but it is, maybe. We don't really know. That's why it's hard to talk about, because, yeah. uh, I did ask her, I said, here's another question. Tell me about some of your influences. I'm feeling a lot of Guillermo del Toro, especially, but also there's just a real dark undercurrent that reminds me of modern horror films. And her answer is, you're very right. I actually intended to put little references section at the end of the story for this purpose. It reads as such, and here's her references quote. This story was inspired by elements found in Donnie Darko, The Secret Garden, El Espinosa del Diablo, Goek's Song, that's probably a Korean horror, A Little Princess, which is also a a short story that was written by the same author as The Secret Garden. Okay. El Labertino del Fauna, which is the Spanish name for Pan's Labyrinth. Oh, yeah, and various myths and folklore from East Asia and the Americas. And we see those folklore elements in some of the characters that she creates, these fantasy characters. Um, But I'll go on with her answer, and it's kind of a long one, but it's a really good one. I watch a lot of movies about similar things. They all have elements in common, and a lot of them were inspiration for this. I originally intended this to be strictly Latin American influences, but the more I looked at folklore and creatures across multiple cultures, I realized that there was simply more potential without cultural boundaries. This was also my reasoning behind having an animal in a tree, but for an entirely different reason. I enjoyed the way del Toro incorporated nature into his stories. And as a child, I was way too obsessed with frogs. The lizard was supposed to be a toad originally, but that was too similar. And she's referring to a scene in Pan's Labyrinth. Mm. The idea had already been taken. I took one thought of my lizard and the way she sometimes scarfed down hornworms with such veracity that her throat bulged from the pressure and I thought she might choke. 
and this is uh, one of Gia's pets at home. <laughs> she never did, and I decided that this would be especially horrifying if she were 144 inches long instead of six. The tree woman came from my brain. Emerald boas are the prettiest snakes I've seen, and I often wish my pets would talk to me. That, for me, is a perfect spiritual guide. That's cool. Yeah, isn't that cool? I was reminded, too, like, how vivid our... Like, we grew up in the country, and um, we spent a lot of time outdoors as kids. And I remember, especially, like, playing, uh, like, Lord of the Rings outside. Yeah. And, like, Mirkwood. But it all felt, I don't know, to me, like, especially as a kid, it all felt, like, really real, and we had our own worlds. Or, yeah, we divided our property up in different realms, and we each had a realm. <laughs> and uh, it was just really real, and that was, like, playtime. Like, we weren't inside all the time. Uh, we certainly were sometimes. We had our TV shows and stuff, but we spent a lot of time outdoors, and that's where the imagination really gets to grow. And I know, and that's why I think all those books that she mentioned, like uh, like a Secret Garden, Secret Garden, yeah, was a big one. Um, just being outside it. and unattended by parents. And in this yes. story, Carmen and Johnny are in and out, but Miguel has a lot of time yes. by himself or yeah. with uh, Hawk or Aisha. And so, and that's always common in like the best kind of like kid adventure movies is like the parents aren't around. I think it's like Spielberg, he's so good on childhood and imagination. And part of it, I think, is simply that he was making those films in the 80s, 90s, whenever. And that's when kids had a lot more like the latch door gener or latchkey kid generation. Parents are at work. You have your, you know, you go home and then you like do your own thing and there's no parent hovering. You're not in touch with them by cell phone because no one has a cell phone. And, uh, you're very much, I don't know, it was like that Gen X generation just had, in general, a lot of time to themselves. And it was before everyone was as paranoid about serial killers and child predators. It was like this more innocent time. And like, I don't know, like part of this feels like there's a little bit of that in the fact that Carmen's not, she's not helicoptering over Miguel. She's kind of like, just come be home before 11. Yeah. It's just like a, there's a sweetness to that. Yeah. And I, you think about, yeah, how that's connected with imagination. Like kids, <laughs> kids these days, just like we are right now, we're just connected. So we're sucked yeah. into like social media and cell phones yeah. and devices. I think that that's probably uh, going to have some real effects down the road. Like probably. it's so important to get your kids outside and not staring at phones because bad enough when you're 30 years old and you feel like you're not experiencing the world around you. <laughs> well, it's hard in quarantines too. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I say too, like some of this stuff I think comes from like in the show Cobra Kai, even though they acknowledge like, like this generation and the, their social media life, like in some ways that Cobra Kai, the show is like a fantasy. You see these kids interacting in school. There's like no teachers around to like break up fights. Yeah. These kids are like hanging out at parties. And maybe that's what kids do now because I was like, I never went to parties that like <laughs> drank and hung out on the beach and there's like no authorities checking. I, I think in some ways like it's well, because the show was created by these Gen Xers. I mean, those guys, I think that's somewhat maybe what their childhood was like. There was bullying in the hallways. No one gave a shit. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like a, a skewed fantasy of like, it, yes, there's all the social media and it's this generation. And yet. It's kind of colored a little bit by, I think, the creator's Hurwitz slash whatever. Shieldwitz. What is it? Your church of... Um, the church of Schleildwitz. <laughs> the church of Schleildwitz. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, Hayden Schlossberg, Josh Shield, and uh, John Hurwitz. That's right. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. The, the big three. Yeah. But yeah, they're all of that generation where, yeah, you basically had your Schwinn. Yeah. And your parents kicked you out and you had adventures on your bikes all day. Yeah. 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 <laughs> 
like Stranger Things. Actually, this is a great segue because uh, this answer is not over, so I'll keep reading. But the next paragraph sure. is kind of what we're talking about. I really tried to find a root in realism and already existing myths. Things like the Mandrake root are perfect in this regard, since you really don't have to create a backstory for them. They do that all on their own. Mm. I researched a lot of folklore as I was getting started. I knew from years back that Guillermo del Toro's inspiration for the Pale Man came from a creature in Japanese folklore called a Tenomi, which is a being with eyes in its hands, which is that creepy image so you creepy. always remember. Yeah, that scared me when I first saw that. It's like I've seen this movie like one time, but that image just stuck with me like all these years. And if someone does the hand movement over the eyes, you know exactly what they're talking about. Yeah. yeah. So crazy. Something about, something about the Japanese have, um, their horror movies have this way of just getting to the nub of something that's just. Yeah. Ugh. You know, root of whatever's disturbing, and then you know, they're so good. Actually, Korea, I should Korean say, filmmakers too. Yeah, Korean horror movies. Yeah, yeah they, and maybe it's something about both those countries have a burgeoning, wonderful film industry. Whereas, yeah, like, you do, you don't have that, for instance, in China. Even though there's some overlapping cultural elements, probably some government censorship has to do with that. Oh yeah, uh, terrible. I, um, anyway, let's see. Going on about the Japanese folklore. I did my research on various entities from East Asia, like the Kitsune, which is the seven-tailed, I think it's seven-tailed. Fox and nine-tailed. Yes. Um, She says, I liked that one especially because it reminded me of Daniel. But for the life of me, I don't know why. I knew for sure that I wanted to also include what we are more familiar with, like Skinwalkers and the Wendigo, to which I can thank my grandfather for those terrifying stories to keep me off the streets at night. I feel like a lot of readers will simply know these things from Supernatural. Or I was going to say, even the um, the Who is Like God, so the t- this is a bit of a segue, but Who is Like God, it's a really unique title, mm-hmm. and it comes from the Hebrew translation of the archangel's name, Michael. Michael. Um, so his day, he was a warrior. <laughs> he was like the... Uh, in the, Supernatural. <laughs> in Supernatural, as you may know, Michael, the Archangel Michael, was like this fierce warrior angel. And his name, I guess, was like a literal war cry. So he would like kind of like yell out his own name. But what it meant is <laughs> this person who is like... Michael! Uh, <laughs> yeah, Michael! So obviously we have uh, the parallel with Miguel. Miguel is the uh, Spanish version of Michael Miguel. Yeah. Let's see. Let's just go on here. So yeah. So her grandfather used to tell her these crazy stories at night. So the Wendigo and Skinwalkers are examples of uh, these monsters, which the Wendigo is. It's not named in there, but I think at the end of chapter, I'm not sure which chapter it is, but Miguel's looking through this kind of mystical book that he finds at the beginning of the story. And it's almost, it's a plot device, but it's like kind of his guide through these trials that he has to yeah, go to. Yeah. But there's description of this monster and we haven't seen it yet, but there's a lot of foreshadowing that we're going to see it. Yeah. Um, it's this awful, here, I'll read the description. Hold on. I'll take a bite of my apple now. Yes. Oh, I got the worst snack to pick up when you're recording something. <laughs> Um, so the description uh, that she gives of the Wendigo, so Miguel's looking through this, the book that I was saying was kind of a plot device, and it's sort of giving him clues as to next steps on his journey. And Miguel's journey, I should say, is to save his grandmother. Uh, I don't think it's too big of a spoiler in this because no, it's, it's a through line throughout the story that although this the season two events are paralleling what's in the show. The difference is that in this Rosa has been diagnosed with cancer 
And it's not good. She has maybe like a 50% chance to make it, 50 or 60% chance. So that's one of these like stressors. He's got a lot on his plate. He does. So he goes through these trials and this book is helping him. He's getting these hints that if he retrieves these items, um, that he can help save his grandmother. And the, the little fairy guide I mentioned is also kind of leading him on the way. But here he is discovering this page. And he's dropped the book, I think, on the ground, and, and the wind kind of blows it. And there's a sense that the book is maybe kind of sentient, uh, and things change. Like, he notices things in the book that he didn't before. But he sees this book. He scanned the page, the illustration immediately jumping out at him. An inky, dark flower with a multitude of elongated, overlapping petals. He'd seen it before. Chrysantha something, he thought. People gave it away at funerals. He knew that, too. And usually always white-colored. He'd never seen a black one before. Miguel looked around briefly. He didn't want to stand there in the middle of the sidewalk and read it, but he also didn't want to close it in the case for some reason it wasn't there anymore when he got home. So he, there, there's uh, some description in the middle, a flower that could give life back from the dead, so you get this hint that this flower is exactly what he needs. But then there's this description of the Wendigo. Miguel looked carefully at the drawing, sinewy and emaciated beyond measure, yet equally formidable standing on abnormally tall legs that resembled those of a goat. The head bore the same resemblance, only as if someone had taken the effort to skin the head, hanging in wet, pulpy strips around its neck. Milky eyes popped outwards in the sockets of its flayed head. He traced a finger over the ink, reading the few lines dedicated to its warnings. Beware the altered state it inflicts. One may outsmart it, but it is crucial not to underestimate it. The last line felt like more an inevitable warning, urgent. You will undoubtedly pay the price. Miguel frowned, hastily closing the book. And then I wrote a note under that that says, scary. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, it's just this kind of like horror image of this Wendigo, and we haven't seen that thing yet, but there's we're probably going to in the next chapters. <laughs> <laughs> there's also like an X-Files episode with Wendigo, isn't there? Wendigo? Oh, yeah. Yeah. X-Files yeah. and Supernatural, I think, both. Both of them. Mm -hmm. That's so funny. And we'll go back to uh, Gia's answers again. Um, in regards to your horror movie comment, I can say that the context and personal feelings are important for creepiness. Stephen King has a good view on this type of thing. He says there's a difference between horror and terror. Horror is the unnatural or a state that's clearly out of place, like the unexpected or altered state. Terror is a little bit different. Terror is meant to be slower and more insidious. He describes it like this. Terror, when you come home and notice everything you own has been taken away or replaced by an exact substitute. It's when the lights go out and you feel something behind you. You hear it and feel its breath against your ear. But when you turn around, there's nothing there. According to an online thread I was reading, many of those people continue to run up the stairs at night, despite the logical fact that there are no monsters waiting for them in the dark. I think a lot of people continue to be afraid of things they were once scared by as a child. It might just manifest in different ways. I try to keep that thought while I'm writing. Being alone in the unfamiliar insects and darkness are things I find to be at the top of those unpleasant feelings. Nobody really likes to feel lost or vulnerable. Miguel is feeling all those things more frequently as the story goes on, and he's only 16. So there's more to the answer we'll go back to, but... 
I love that image of like an adult running up the dark stairs real quick because it's like too dark in the basement or something like that. There's no logical reason to be scared, but part of you is still uh, that little kid. Mm-hmm. And Carmen and Johnny experience unsettling things too. So it's not just Miguel. Um, Carmen throughout the story is kind of watching Miguel unravel a little bit. I think she's worried about his sanity. Um, and like you said, she, she earlier, she finds this yeah. bowl uh, full of blood with this mandrake in it that yeah. uh, Miguel's <laughs> trying to use because the book tells him it's going to help his grandma. And Carmen actually finds that and it really freaks her out. Like from the smelled. <laughs> oh, yeah. It smelled bad. It's like, it's like finding like if your kid had put like a dead rabbit under the, you know, and it was like in some kind of weird ritual like thing, you'd be like. People are disturbed. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just like unsettling. Like, and I, there's actually more kind of like mentions of blood that run through this story. Like in later chapters, Rosa has to go to the hospital, and Miguel has this kind of disturbing visions of like I think it's just like blood and red, and he wakes up, and actually the light from the emergency lights are reflecting on the ceiling of his room, like mm-hmm. so red. I think there's also blue, but it's just really great kind of reflection of this kind of nightmare he's having and the nightmare that's happening actually in the apartment that he wakes up to. Right. So Carmen's kind of watching her child go through something that she doesn't understand, but that's clearly disturbing. And Mm -hmm. uh, Johnny has lost his mother and he doesn't have a kid, but he's also watching kind of the corruption of Crease take its tolls on Miguel. Um, But he also has these like flashbacks or nightmares to his own mother. Yeah. Those are some of my favorite scenes. And like, you don't get as much of Johnny in this story because it's a Miguel story, but uh, you do get a little bit of Johnny point of view and some of those flashbacks to seeing his mother scared or his mother upset. That's some of my favorite scenes. Oh, it's so good. And um, if you've ever seen uh, the Ari Aster movie, Midsummer, I, I really don't like um, <laughs> Ari Aster in a way because he's like, an excellent filmmaker. Like his films are so beautiful, but have this undercurrent of violence and horror. And um, I acknowledge that he's a great writer and a filmmaker. So he is really good. But, um, and it's a testament to how good he is because his movies just disturb me so much. Um, I don't want to watch them anymore. I think. <laughs> I think the problem is that, as well as all of that, at the end, he's also like a nihilist. Yeah, there's not really like a glimmer of hope for the characters, which I always have yeah. to have myself. But some people don't need that. And um, and I don't know if uh, Gia needs that. I'm not sure. We'll maybe find out in some of her answers here. But uh, but yeah, that scene with Laura reminds me of um, a scene in Midsummer where you see uh, – it's a story of a woman grieving. She loses her entire family and this uh, scene of her crying is uh, kind of reminiscent of – the nightmare that Johnny has about his mother. So, and actually Gia's, I'm going to have Gia speak here for herself because she talks about it. She says, I really wanted to make it clear that the adults in the story, namely Johnny and Carmen are also suffering. I believe that one of the two most uncomfortable things one can experience would be watching your parents cry and watching your parents deteriorate. Everyone gets old and it's never comfortable to watch as you slowly become the caregiver. Johnny's traumatic incident with his mother when he was a teenager is a prime example. It's meant to be uncomfortable. He can't stop what's going on, no matter what. The sounds of someone in pain are uncomfortable, physically and mentally. If you ever watch some news story of parents finding out about their child's violent death, you'll know what I'm talking about. People express sadness and grief in really unpredictable ways. 
Carmen and Johnny are both experiencing what no child wishes to experience. Taking care of a parent emotionally feels weird. It feels not right, like something that's not supposed to happen. Mm -hmm. Taking care of a sick parent is more common, but still evokes the helplessness of being out of control, out of your element. To me, this is extremely relatable through everyday life. Helplessness, lack of control, and ambiguity are three things your brain does not like. This is why graduates and people in their 20s can be so confused. You just really don't know what to do, like you're running around with no direction, so you might take risks. Every character from Daniel and Amanda to Sam and Miguel are all experiencing these things. Oh, man. That's really good. Yeah. Isn't that insightful? <laughs> yeah. I was like, wow. And yeah. I mean, I sort of remember when Grandpa Hudson died and seeing Mom upset for the first time. And see, like that was tough. You know, it's a normal human response, obviously. But it's like I don't get upset until I see my parents upset as far as them losing a parent. And then you realize that they're a child, too. Yeah. And that's a real world upending yeah. realization that you maybe only have when you're a teenager. Um, I don't know. I don't know how often young kids, at least our parents, really kept it together when we were young. I do remember a couple instances of maybe mom crying, but it was like she would pull it together. So it was like if we were like complaining too much about dinner or something and she'd worked yeah. really hard on it. it yeah. But she would like pull it together and smile and be like, oh, nothing to worry about. And and you'd be kind of like, oh, okay. And dad's like, you made fucking mother cry. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you go apologize to your mother. <laughs> uh, I remember uh, when our other grandpa died, um, I think I remember seeing – I feel like my brain almost shut it out because it was traumatic. I think I remember dad crying. Which, I think you're right, maybe. And we never see that. No. Yeah. Um, and, it, yeah, it's this world-upending thing where you realize that um, maybe your parents are still trying to figure things out too, and they were kids and they had to grow yeah. up. And then you get into your teenage and your twenties, and it's funny too. Yeah, it's like it it all makes more sense. Like even from twenty to thirty, because like at thirty, like I still feel like a kid. And I assumed at twenty that that would go away. Just as yeah, that when I was ten, I felt like twenty will feel like adult. And at twenty, you're like, oh well, thirty will feel like adult. And so part of me thinks that oh well, sure, surely forty will feel like an adult. But if this keeps going the way it's going. <laughs> yeah, people have kids at our age, Laura. Yeah, it's crazy. Isn't that crazy? Um, so yeah, so it, just kind of recap that. So in this story, it's not just Miguel going through sort of trials. Carmen is taking care of her sick mother, and Johnny is lost. He has lost Tommy, and he's kind of yeah. trying to. And he's just off equilibrium because he's not doing a good job with his students. Just no. as in the show, yeah. he's you want to like shake him and be like, wake up. Yeah, and it's too late when he does wake up. Um, there's kind of a parallel in this story between Miguel dealing with his grandmother's cancer and the cancer that's eating away at Rosa. Yeah. And then this kind of like crease Kai being a cancer to Johnny's Cobra Kai philosophy. Like he's built this class of students that loves him and then he kind of just starts to make some mistakes. And Yeah, and then like Cobra Kai has been like sort of his rock through things. And it's like when things are falling apart at home, you feel like he should be able to escape and just have like an hour or two of karate that makes sense. But that's not the case because things are being shaken up there, too. Yeah. So the the things that are like piling onto Miguel throughout this story, I have a list of like rising <laughs> things tensions. That suck from things that suck for Miguel. Um, so like I said, the very first sentence of the story establishes that we are in summer and it's a really hot summer. So there's a literal rising temperature 
Um, and there's also this recurring element of thirst and dryness. Like everybody's always waking up in the middle of the night with a dry mouth or dry eyes or getting a glass of water. I don't know if you noticed that. I didn't. I didn't. That's very stupid. Yeah. If you, I've read this a few times, so I've had some time to pick up things that, um, you might not have had time Mm -hmm. to. So that was one thing I noticed this time. The, the AC also breaks, I think halfway through the story at the, at the Diaz apartment. So, um, everyone's just hot and exhausted uh insomnia is the second point of tension yeah miguel is sleeping less and less and you also see carmen and carmen works nights sometimes yeah so you have these scenes where uh they're maybe both kind of awake at like four in the morning and you know insomnia is like a thing where it's sort of unnatural you're supposed to be asleep Mm -hmm. but you're not and it's a huge physical stressor and so miguel's walking around there's a lot of description of like his head and his thoughts are really fuzzy (laughs) so it puts him in this like stressful position i guess it's more too like evidence if he is having i'm not saying he is having hallucinations but there's more reason to doubt that he's mentally well because he's not getting enough sleep Mm -hmm. also like with the horror genre like that's the witching hour right so he's up at all these hours where magical things happen sort of yeah, that weird like three, four o'clock. Yeah. You're in between day and night yeah. and insomnia. You're in this fuzzy headed space where you're kind of in between wake and sleep. You're definitely awake, but yeah, uh, your body is tired, even though your your mind is awake. Um, so he's losing sleep. Um, obviously, like I said, the cancer with Rosa. So his Miguel's home life. Um, with his grandmother being sick, also causes some tension. And you see this especially in chapters like five, six, seven, that uh, Carmen and Miguel start to kind of not grow apart, but there's like, she doesn't understand what's happening to him. And she also has expectations that he should probably be home more. Yeah. And he's going to karate. And she can see he's sick. So there's these scenes where she's like, why are you going to karate? Uh, why are you out so late? And I, as a reader, I'm like, why are you going to karate? I know. I know. Um, yeah, there's a scene where he gets back from seeing his grandma at the hospital and there's this crazy, weird horror scene where he gets these like diamond like rocks that start to, his eyes are itching and he goes to the sink. Oh yeah. I, yeah. That was one of my favorite just horror images. And he's got, like 30 of these things. He just keeps pulling them out of his eyelids. Um, and he's kind of, and he's bleeding, you know, down his, uh, face and it's just this crazy, weird horror image um so she doesn't see that but he comes out like looking like hell and she's like oh my god are you okay um but he comes home and i think he goes to karate like that night i could be getting that mixed up but um anyway so the home life in the diaz household is uh starting to fall apart um the threat of crease kai like i said is like uh, this parallel cancer and that drives a wedge between miguel and hawk just like it does in the show Yes. So there's a lot of Hawk just being a yeah. kind of a jerk, especially about Sam. Yes. Um, there is kind of a, a later scene where they sort of reconcile a little bit. Uh, Hawk notices that Miguel's real stressed out, so he gets him drunk. Yeah, um, I feel like now I'm too much at the age where I'm like, I'm too, I'm like mothering Miguel because I'm like, why are you hanging out with that boy? Like in my, mind, I'm like, <laughs> now he's making you drink. You just need a good night's sleep. Stop going to Cobra. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm not the best reader for that. (laughs) 
Well, it is. I mean, you get these little slips of Eli coming in there. And I know. He sort of gives Miguel some like, he basically says sort of like, go for it with Sam. But that really takes Hawk being drunk because normal Hawk is like, yeah. like during the Coyote Creek fight, he's a real asshole yeah. about it. Yeah, and he did take the Medal of Honor and he did mess up the dojo. I mean, he yeah, that's all he the same. Radicalized. He's like a radical zealot at this point. Yeah, he's drinking the Kool Aid straight from Crease. It depends how big of a Hawk fan you are. I'm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're not a hawk fan. I don't know I can easily be turned give me a glimmer of like humanity and I'll be easily turned like I know he's still a kid that was going through a lot he was offered this way of getting self-confidence and a, a, some sense of uh, oh, a version of himself that he could really live with and be proud of and he just like took it and ran with it a little too far for me so if it make him human again I'll be right back on board but meanwhile I'm like ah yeah. Medal of Honor, like that is, uh, it makes me, it makes me very, very angry. Yeah, I think you're supposed to be, definitely. That, we won't go too far on this tangent, sure, yeah, but sorry. that hawk is uh, just all on the crease Kool-Aid, um, but Eli's still in there. So that tension between Eli and Hawk, it's just a mirror of the show, the tension between Miyagi-Do and uh, Cobra Kai, and that Johnny's Cobra Kai is probably the right answer if it comes enough into that gray area and that middle ground. Yeah. Um, so there's an answer there for Hawk and Eli somewhere, but it's not um, the Hawk that uh, trashed a dojo and stole a Japanese man's Medal of Honor. <laughs> yeah, That's yeah, it. yeah, for sure. So the tension of, uh, yeah, the Hawk friendship uh, getting pretty intense. Um, Miguel's sanity in general, he sees more and more of these fantasy things, so... Again, there's that ambiguity, but it's definitely taking a toll on Miguel. And, and um, Sam. Things with Sam. Yeah, Sam and Tori. The Sam angst with the Tori complication. Tori. Um, I li- I've grown to like t- – I think I think the breakup scene um, – this is one of the – I don't think it's too big of a spoiler because, I mean, it's not Miguel, Tori, endgame. But Miguel and Tori do go out in this story a little bit just like in the show. But – there is a canon departure where Miguel and Tori actually sort of confront their problems head on and they uh, break up. But definitely there's tension with um, just Miguel still loving Sam and angsting over that and Tori uh, being in the mix in a weird way. So, yeah, um, right. I've always been tough on Tori, but like the part where Miguel's like, you should just get a new job. Part of me's like, come on, Miguel. Like, don't tell a working girl that. Like, that's her business. And there's some frustration with Sam. Like, she has no idea what it means to be uh, someone that actually has to earn their own money. I, I totally am on board with that. Yeah, t- Sam and Tori come from wildly different uh, backgrounds. And Sam- it's like that Korean movie. Uh, what was that Korean movie that just won the Oscar? Um, oh, Parasite. Parasite. There's a clip. I haven't seen it yet, but there's a clip from the trailer that um, they're talking about the the kind, nice family that's contrasted in the movie with the the poor family that has it's to work. Excellent. Yeah, it's an excellent movie. Oh, have you seen it? Oh, uh, yes, I did. Oh, actually. nice. There's a quote in there that um, they're talking about the family, the rich family, and one of the characters says they're so nice, and the second character says they're nice because they're rich. Like, yeah. Sam is such a sweetheart, yeah. but she hasn't had to face real adversity in life like Tori has. Um. Yeah, but yeah, it's like that whole movie is, it's just like one of the most excellent without being too heavy handed. 
it's this excellent commentary on what poverty does to people and the insulation that money can buy you. Um, and it, yeah, we don't, we won't, I won't go on about it, but uh, it's uh, as disturbing as any Korean kind of horror horror film is, but it's it's excellent. Those yeah. Koreans are getting getting to the nub of things. Yeah, they they know how to shake you up. Yeah. Um, and then I guess the last point I was just in this list of uh, tension or pressures on Miguel is just uh, all, and that's kind of the combination of all of these things. It's like the pain and deterioration. They all get worse for Miguel as the story progresses. So he's unraveling physically, mentally, and psychically, um, psychically or psychologically. I don't know what you'd call that. But yeah, that that scene, like I said, with the the sharp little glass pieces coming out of his eyes. Um, the insomnia, all of that is just contributing to this unraveling. So the story's not over yet, but that's definitely where things are going. Um, it's not, like I said, it's not a horror story, but it's just there's an undercurrent of a kind of a disturbing, uh, unsettling. Yeah, there's no foundation, even as we like would call it reality. Even so, even the reader's expectation of what, like, what is reality? That's the foundation for everything in a story. So that even that's kind of humming and thrumming and yeah in an unsettled way yeah definitely difficult to read in a way but if you kind of just give yourself over to you know be ready to be unsettled i guess or or surprised then um it's uh definitely worth worth a ride so far and i i will very much look forward to seeing where it goes yeah how about the soundtrack too that do you like the soundtrack oh that is wonderful yes i like the art in it and i love the soundtrack um Yes, the clips. The Donnie Darko music is like so good, and then a lot, lot of other songs that I've never heard of. Um, it's like that wonderful, like it's like Spielberg soundtrack sort of. They're like this child they capture or something like Childhood Innocence, but then with the Donnie Darko as well. It's just like this darker, darker kind of image of that or version of that. Yeah, it's the perfect. She's kind of taken all of the elements of like the story that you get, like the Pan's Labyrinth kind of fantastical darkness, and then the kind of Ari Aster really sinister kind of danger horror so there's there's songs on there from hereditary like laura said donnie darko and donnie darko is that like psychological thing where he's like also experiencing insomnia i think of that movie there's eric Satie is a i think a french composer yeah, his yeah. gymnopedie yes are, are on the soundtrack um and everything is kind of in that minor key which the the story feels like Oh, it's in a minor key. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Yeah, um, actually, in that Guillermo del Toro interview, there's a quote I pulled because he was talking about the movie Pan's Labyrinth. He thought with some, there's like a section of his fans that are obsessed with that movie, and he he talks about that deep connection with some of the viewers, and he says, "I feel that when a movie connects that deep, there's an element of it that you cannot explain, which is like in music." When you hear a song, the melody makes you feel something very deep. It moves you on a deep level. And I think there's something specific about a minor key digs into you that a major key just does not. Yes. Uh, certainly brings out certain, yeah, certain something or other. And beyond words, you can't. But when it gives you that shiver or those goosebumps. Yeah, it's strange. And, I mean, you can hear it. And, um, I mean, uh, just to go on a slight musical tangent... Yay. <laughs> uh, oh, crap. I'm just going to use real quick. You're not going to explain what minor is to them, are you? I was going to, but do you think I shouldn't? Oh, 
Well, I guess you can. I think most people know what major and minor okay. is. Okay, so. well, we'll keep it simple. So a major, if you're just looking at a chord and you just break it down to a bass note, a third, and a fifth, the only difference between a major and a minor chord is the third. And it's just like if you... I guess that is interesting. I thought it was interesting. So here's, I just got my little guitar out here. And I'm not a guitar player, but uh, if you're playing a D major, it sounds like this. Um, and if you change one note in that, let's see if I can get it right here. The only note that you're changing is this one to this one. So, sad. so you have... Da-na-na, da-na-na. And somehow that just like, that minor just... so much more interesting than that's a major key so it's just one note i just thought that was fascinating that something about that minor music just uh sticks with you and makes you feel like major music is happy music is nice but there's something about like a melancholy music that just makes you feel something more I was trying to think of, there's some, there's something called like uh, Tristan and Isolde, Rich, Richard Wagner. Mm -hmm. I think there's actually something called the Tristan Chord. Ooh. Like, uh, it's like the opening to Tristan and Isolde, and it has potential to be like this kind of sweet, probably major, like romantic, and that then it's like... And then that's the 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 one chord that you, it's unexpected and it's like sad and tragic and broken. Yeah, and sets the tone. But it's a kind of early example of how effective someone um, took advantage of how effective that can be. Yeah, and interesting chord. Yeah. So it's I'll put I'll look that up and put it in the show notes. Um, but yeah, so the the whole soundtrack that she provides is full of like this weird, cool minor key type music and I, for me it really set the mood sometimes when i'm reading i don't read with any music and then sometimes i spend like 30 minutes looking for something that um won't will set the right tone i think for a lot of us music can be important when we're reading. yeah and i think it really enhances the story in this case mm -hmm. yeah it's more into what her experience of it what the author's vision of that experience should be and it gives you one more kind of uh texture to work with yeah it's awesome. Um, so definitely use the soundtrack when you're reading this, and I'll put a link in the show notes to that. It's that minor melancholy feeling, uh, and we don't know what exactly the reason is that this type of music does that, and I don't think we know exactly how an author captures that in a in storytelling, but um, there's something about kind of a dark fairy tale that feels very minor key. Yeah, yeah, for um, sure. There's also uh, just on there, – so there's a scene that both of us really enjoyed – I think it's the first scene of chapter five. Yes. Where 
where Miguel and Sam. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 that was good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When Miguel and Sam are talking on the phone, they're talking, and this is a flashback, but there is a mention in that of a lullaby that Carmen used to sing to Miguel. And uh, Gia has a specific song on that soundtrack. And it's like this music box little uh, melody, but it's very cool. But anyway, that's the mel- that's the lullaby that they're talking about in the scene. But um, yeah, it's a beautiful little opening scene with Miguel and Sam. And yeah, you liked this one a lot, didn't you? Yeah, and it, it was kind of nice to see a functional conversation between the two. And that wasn't necessarily romantic, but there's a sweetness to it that an affection between the two that uh, is very well written. Yeah, and I think Sam and Miguel as a pairing, I might have said this before, but they're just so sweet and there's an innocence to them. Uh, they're very like Romeo and Juliet. Yes. Which is, it's, you know, just like the house of uh, Montague and Capulet, you have the house of oh, right. Miyagi-Do and Cobra Kai, <laughs> star-crossed lovers. Issues between their daddies. Yes. Yes, exactly. I wanted to read maybe a couple excerpts. Again, this is a flashback. So in this story, Miguel and Sam are not together. This is a flashback from a time when they were together. Let's see here. They're talking about getting away from their problems. He says, when we go to Alaska, we can rent one of those cool cabins with a glass roof and we can lay under a big blanket with some hot chocolate and watch the northern lights and count all the constellations. They lock eyes through the screen again, and she smiles warmly, Miguel's own mouth turning up with her as she speaks. That sounds really nice. I wish we could, for real. For a moment, the seconds tick by, with Miguel trying for any comforting words. It's just them at the moment, with him on one side of the Ventura freeway, and her on the other. His wall of posters taped on plain paint the antithesis to her cheerily colored bedroom, lined with fairy lights and glossy framed photos as if their entire lives existed in the fringes of a broadly swinging pendulum. He wants to say more to her, tell her anything to keep that smile on her face for as long as he manages to shoo away its falter. Oh, I love that. He loves that smile, always has since the moment he saw her. But he's still no pensive wordsmith or deeply poetic romantic. He can't think of anything to say but his own raw feelings, with nothing else to color them or shape them into something more pleasant or comforting, or smart. I just think that's wonderful. Uh, Just another little passage, a couple lines down, where uh, he says, I'm sorry your parents are fighting. It's okay, not your fault. I know, but I wish I could actually help. Her shoulders rolled back. You are. Talking helps more than you think. Her head falls sideways against her pillow, maybe looking out her window, but he can't tell for sure. He's never been in her room. She continues looking away, attention fixed on something else outside his limited view into her space. I thought that just moment where he's watching her and he's trying to figure out where in her room she is, but it's like he's never been in her room. So sad. Someone checked my blood sugar. I think I got diabetes because it was so sweet. So sweet. (laughs) I'm sorry. Apologies. Oh, it's great. I just love that image of the... um, the pendulum, their entire lives existed in the fringes of a broadly swinging pendulum. 
And she's, it's like, you know, opposite, they're on opposite sides of the tracks, you know, yeah. rich girl, poor boy, just classic. <laughs> Tragic teenage romance. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, and especially like everything seems, even though Sam's having her own issues, everything seems like in her life, probably to Miguel, seems like it all is functional, whereas in his life, everything's falling apart. And Yeah, that's a really nice. And there's a great scene between uh, Sam and Johnny as well that I like later on. Um, there's a lot of great scenes between characters maybe you wouldn't expect. There's this, There's a great scene. The only I think the only other point of view besides Johnny, Carmen, and Miguel in this is there's a scene with Daniel. Oh, yeah, yeah, Daniel and Miguel. Yeah, yeah, Daniel and Miguel, which I love anytime you get these characters we don't see together. So the Johnny and Sam scene, like I said, is great, but I love the getting the two karate kids together. I don't know, like, there's so many. It's always fun between those two because there's so many similarities, and yet Daniel's, he's all set to see Miguel as the enemy in a way. Oh, yeah. Johnny's protege must be Johnny Jr., and yet. Miguel was probably more in com- way more in common with uh, Daniel than with Johnny, certainly. Yeah, definitely. They're so alike. He's the poor kid from Reseda. He's uh, in love with a rich girl. Mm-hmm. So well, hopefully we'll see that in season three. Then. Yeah, and you get a little bit of that nice reconciliation. It's not total reconciliation, but, yeah. but Daniel actually notices a difference between what he pictured Miguel being. Yeah, he's like, this isn't Yeah, this, he's like, I, there's some line about like kind of a sweet, doe-eyed kid or something like he notices, <laughs> which all of us as viewers, I think Miguel is maybe the most beloved, even more than Johnny maybe, Miguel is the most beloved show, character on the show because yeah. he's such a good kid and he's been yeah. through this journey and he's worked really hard and he's such a sweetheart and I think that's one of the reasons Sam uh, is disliked by a big slice of the audience, in my opinion, because, you know, she's, she, uh... She's hard to relate to when she's driving, she's, like, supposed to be 15, she's driving around in an uh, Audi. Yeah. What world is this? <laughs> oh, dude. Good world. That's actually in the tradition of um, Karate Kid writers not paying attention to kids' ages or giving them... Yeah, that's, that's true. Like, Daniel being uh, 16 and getting a car and driving around and... Um, but being yeah, a senior right. at the same time, you're like, oh, yeah, well, that's not yeah, makes sense. Like Robert Mark came and did, he was like teenagers. He's child age. Yeah. He's teenage age. So, um, but yeah, Miguel as a character, uh, seeing him with Daniel was, uh, really nice in this story. I love that. Yeah. So, um, anyway, I don't want to spoil too much of this. So we'll kind of wrap up some of the discussion. There's actually a lot of question and answer I didn't weave in, but I'm going to upload the questions that I asked Gia and that she got to answer. So she's put a ton of thought behind the story. So yeah, check it out. Last thoughts um, on the story. Do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I think the reading the interview really uh, with her that you, that you had was great, and you get to see a lot of the thought uh, behind the choices she's made. But anyway, um, I'm looking forward to more Johnny and Carmen because I don't normally ship them or pay a whole lot of attention, even though both actors are great in the show. But I've loved the interactions they've had in this fic. There's a scene when they're when they're smoking weed together outside. She's a great character in this story. I'm looking forward to uh, a little more Daniel as well and seeing uh, where Miguel's uh, and I hope Miguel is safe. Uh, the fact that even the like the crazy disturbing snake warned him off of this path he's going down. Um, going to look forward to seeing that and seeing like if this does go in the direction it could, which would be a choice to uh, um, Yaya guy. 
you know, that's like an interesting, like, he seems to be under the impression that almost like she shouldn't ever die. It's like that fantasy we have as kids that our parents aren't going to die. We're not going to die. And uh, Miguel doesn't, he, he doesn't seem to be able to cope with the possibility that Yaya is going to pass on. Um, but if that happens, that would be another interesting character investigation, how he deals with that. Um, anyway, though, um, and I'm looking forward to uh, more soundtracks. Yeah, gosh, that's a good point. I think my last thoughts have to do with I'm interested to see if uh, all the characters get out of this alive. <laughs> yeah, I'm not convinced that they will. And if I think a lazy panda is one of the gutsiest writers and most original writers we have in this mm-hmm. fandom, she's not afraid to do things that um, <laughs> maybe some other people would shy away from. So I'm not totally convinced that Miguel will make it out. I don't know. I think either Miguel or or Yaya or Rosa have to go. I don't know for sure. If anyone would do that, it might be Gia. (laughs) If anyone would do it, it would be her. And she likes those kind of Ari Aster sort of um, where the protagonist is never safe. So and I, you know, I... I would never do that to a character, but I think if someone can do it and do it in a way that uh, it's still satisfying to the reader. I think she can do it. So yeah. I have no idea. Again, um, I don't know the end game of this story. I know that she does. I know that she has it planned out. So wait a second. You killed off half the Larusa family in uh, oh in, <laughs> in the book of Job. Yeah, in the book of Job. Yeah, unfinished. I did. Oh, I did fine. kill off. I have killed off Amanda and oh, Anthony rough. before. Yeah, rough start, but then it gets all fluffy. Um, <laughs> But yeah, but this is certainly not a fluffy story, which I enjoy. I would also say that um, I'm going to definitely put this in the show notes that if there's people for some reason listening to this that uh, haven't gotten into Cobra Kai fan fiction but want to, this is a great start because uh, a lot of people don't get into it because they're not, they don't ship Johnny and Daniel together. And that's like 50 to 60% of the stories on AO3 right now are La Russa, which is Johnny and Daniel together romantically. <laughs> And if you have a friend maybe that's interested in fan fiction but that might not be into that, this is a great one to point them towards. It's original. It's well-written. In my opinion, nobody writes the Diaz family so far that I've seen as well as Gia does. I think her Carmen, like you said, and her Rosa are so vivid and so great, so well sketched out and painted in that um, uh, it's extremely enjoyable to read. So. So anyway, those are my last thoughts. Uh, we'll end this on a rapid fire section where I asked Gia uh, 10 questions and said one sentence to one word answers. So Laura, if you will do me the favor of being Gia. Yeah, he's not, he's not one word, but. <laughs> one word to one sentence-ish. Yeah, okay. we'll see. So question one, what are you currently reading, fanfic or literature? Either one. My anatomy and law textbooks. I only read for school now, unfortunately. I just don't have the time. After my exams, I want to read The Stranger by Albert Camus. Since I've never read it, I also have A Good Wife by Samra Zafar on my nightstand. Good stuff. Uh, Number two, favorite current TV show besides Cobra Kai? I really enjoy Freaks and Geeks. (laughs) I loved that show. Uh, Number three, current favorite Cobra Kai character to read or write? Miguel, of course. Uh, Her Miguel is wonderful. Current Cobra Kai pairing to read or write? Uh, Miguel Robbie, platonic or romantic, and Sam Miguel. Yeah, if, if you haven't read Gia's uh, Miguel Robbie breakup fic, it's called Boy Toy. Uh, it is now finished. It's 28,000 words, and it's a really uh, grown-up, again, she's not afraid to do it. It's a breakup fic, but it kind of 
it jumps around through these sort of memories and moments of them. And all of us have relationships that don't work out. It's really good. You should read it. <laughs> Boy toy. I'll link it in the show notes. Question five, any current or future writing projects you want us to keep an eye out for? Gia says, I suppose when I have time, I'm going to take an opportunity to write some Hawk and Dimitri centered fan fiction that also contains supernatural elements. Ooh. Yeah. And there's, there is, she has written some like vampire Daniel stuff. So just go to her author page and check some stuff out. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, this question six, name one Cobra Kai fic on your bookmarks list. Gia answers yours, which uh, she's referring to no mercy for the midlife crisis. She's so sweet. Question seven, name one Cobra Kai fic or author you think is underread. Change the circumstances. She says, they wrote a lot of good Bobby Johnny that really didn't get much love. One of my favorites is Sneaking Through Johnny's Window. And I'll find that one and link it as well. I haven't read that one, so I'll give that one a read as well. Yeah. Uh, question eight, Team Cobra Kai or Team Miyagi-Do? Very Gia fashion. She says, neither, I suppose. <laughs> she said, although I'm more Cobra Kai. Question nine, what are you most hoping to see in season three? <laughs> more character development. Please, I beg. <laughs> I think we see a lot of good stuff, especially from Johnny, but there's some other characters that have been sort of shortchanged, so I agree with her. I would like more yeah. challenges for Daniel, maybe. And yeah. I want to see Anthony. <laughs> I, I would love to see more Anthony. <laughs> uh, last question. This is really self-indulgent because of the direction that Laura and I have uh, been exploring in our fandom lives. The question is, Batman, Superman, or Wonder Woman, or your other favorite superhero? I love her answer, too. She says, I don't have a favorite superhero. I suppose I enjoy Poison Ivy, but she's a villain, not a hero. Uh, you know, I should have included villains in that. I would say Poison Ivy is. No, I've seen some like funny memes where she's the only one that cares about the environment. <laughs> and <laughs> she's like an anti-hero. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's there's some meme that it's like comparing like um, Bruce Wayne, like billionaire playboy capitalist yeah. um, versus uh, Mr. Freeze, who is a man trying to save his dead wife and Poison Ivy, uh, an environmentalist trying to save the earth. Like why? Why is the billionaire playboy capitalist the good guy? It's pretty great. It's funny. But yeah. OK, well, that'll wrap it up. Um Laura and I are just going to uh, briefly talk about what we've been into lately, which mm -hmm. is like DC, the DC universe. Yeah. So if you're into that at all, stick around. If you're not, um, thank you for listening to this episode. Yeah, you might as well hang up. This will probably wrap up technically season one of the podcast, So, but more will be on the way, more author interviews, oh. uh, more good stuff. So um, yeah, stick around. But yeah, DC universe, Laura. Oh man, yeah. I don't even know how I got started into it. Well, probably through you. We started getting through Smallville and then got an obsession with Superman. And then I am personally am into the Bat family real hard right now. Yeah. So we were working, we were deep into Cobra Kai and we were even working on a project that we called the high school baseball fic. Oh yeah. Sad. That's totally gone to the wayside. It could still happen. It could still happen. It would be so good. But then. Maybe like next baseball season August. <laughs> oh, dude. You know how. Okay. But really, the real villains of all this are the Cobra guys. Do you know why? Oh, because they got you into Smallville? Yeah. yeah. So the Cobra guys I love, Mikey and Jeremy, shout out if they're still listening somehow. Um, they have a podcast called It's a Smallville After All. <laughs> and I love Mikey and Jeremy from the Cobra guys podcast. So I was like, oh, fuck yeah, Smallville. Um, I remember that show. 
I'll give it a listen. And their podcast made me want to go back and rewatch the show. Shocking, by the way, that it turns out it's like 20 years old. You're like, what? 2001 is when they started. That's crazy. Up. That is so something. I so then I was like, oh, co- um, super. Ah, fuck, I can't talk. Um, oh, <laughs> Smallville thick. Um, and the obvious romantic pairing yeah. that I immediately was drawn to was like, what's the most <laughs> intense, emotionally intense pairing in the show? You may be tempted to think Lana and Clark, uh-uh. but actually. I would say that it's Lex and Clark. So yeah. my gay shipping little goggles went immediately on. And I think I sent Laura some Clark Lex fan fiction. And then she was like, oh, this is good. Well, yeah, I was looking at first and I was like, actually, this is pretty good. <laughs> did that Did that cue your uh, interest in the Bat family or how did you get I into that? So. I think so. Actually, yes, because you got me looking through some like Clexic. And there are a couple of them, I think, where I can't. I think it reminded me, like, I actually had previously read, I think, some Batman fan fiction when I was really into the Nolan films. And actually, as a kid, uh, well, my big series was this Peter David Supergirl series, but I also collected some Nightwing issues. And I had I had liked Batman, and I had liked the idea of Robin, and um, I hadn't known a lot about it, but at some point I started collecting Nightwing um, issues and really fell in love with the character of Dick Grayson. So then, at, and at some point I saw the film Under the Red Hood, which chronicles the story of Jason Todd, the second Robin. And so I was like kind of like vaguely a fan of these characters, but then I dove into the fan fiction more and then I started buying, like I bought some Red Hood issues and some more Nightwing issues and anything I could find basically uh, with the Bat family and, and then started reading all this fan fiction. So I'm steeped right now. I love Jason Todd. I love Dick Grayson. And that's my pairing as well, of course. Gotta have. We, we have to have a gay pairing in there somewhere. So Yeah, I don't know why. You just got to go gay, man. <laughs> go gay or go home. <laughs> well, and there, you know, it's like... If you're going to have a gay character in Batman, you know, I mean, just look at what Robin's wearing. Oh, shut up. <laughs> or the infamous um, disco wing face of oh, Dick Grayson. Man. So, so Dick Grayson was the first Robin. He transitioned. Out, he kind of grew out of Robin and became this hero called Nightwing. Yeah. Um, but there was this odd transitory period. What is that, Laura, in the 80s or 90s? 90s. I don't know, late 80s, early 90s, somewhere in there. <laughs> Where Dick Grayson wears yeah. this tremendous outfit yeah. with a wild um flowing uh collar it's like this giant know, yeah. flaring collar like a dracula collar. no oh yeah. it's the gayest shit you've it ever certainly seen certainly impede um you know looking behind you <laughs> <laughs> like, i have a flea collar on almost oh my god <laughs> that out it's very impractical so and the current nightwing costume is like awesome like it's great it's so sexy. It's got the blue bird on the front. It's simple. It's functional. Um, yeah. But I think that, like, and the Jason Todd story is, like, so so interesting. It's, like, so, uh, she's got all this emotion in the whole, Bat, you know, Batman family and Bruce Wayne. Anyway, that that's definitely what I'm into right now. Jason Todd's a total badass. Jason Todd is awesome. And in that under the... Re- under the Red Hood uh-huh. animated yeah. movie that Laura mentioned, 
Um, the voice of Jason Todd yeah. is Jensen Ackles. Doesn't hurt, which we love. Who you know, of course, was Dean from Supernatural, but he's a perfect kind of gruff, world-weary, uh, but tough guy voice. Yeah. And emotion, like a, an emotional intelligence to him, too. Yeah, and we should say... Uh, yeah, with Red Hood, the the basic uh, storyline is that he was the second Robin after Dick Grayson uh, became yeah. Nightwing. Um, and a very different Robin too. He's found trying to jack the uh, tires off of the Batmobile. That's yeah, Batman discovers him. He's an orphan as well. So he's very different from Dick Grayson. Dick Grayson's like this sweet golden boy. Jason's a street rat, really. <laughs> yeah, and he is in this infamous thing that DC did. Um, he wasn't yeah. being well received in the beginning as a replacement because everyone loved Dick Grayson. So they had this crazy like fan survey, and they were like, "Do you want us to kill off Jason Todd?" Yeah, the issue actually said, "Call this number if Jason lives. Call this number, and Jason will die." <laughs> Isn't that crazy? So they had the fan side. There are some rumors too that maybe um. It was unfair, like somebody um, cheated or tipped the scale somehow. Like an auto dialer was used. Yeah. Yeah. So, but they <laughs> let the so fans. There have been one person that killed Jason Todd. Yeah. <laughs> we'll never know. But in any case, it actually saved the character because I think it elicited such sympathy. Because, um, of course, it's comics. Yeah. So he gets resurrected and becomes yeah. the Red Hood. Yeah. Um, and he's such an awesome character. Yeah, I feel like. Oh, I was going to say just a quick comment on Dick Grayson. Uh, how unfortunate is it that mainstream fans who don't know the comics at all that their main exposure to Dick Grayson is Chris O'Donnell's performance in oh, Batman man. Forever? You know, don't make that movie. That it's not good, but right, it's not great. Um, but it is a ton of fun. Uh, and I think at the time I love, I mean, I thought Chris O'Donnell in that movie was the hottest thing. Oh yeah. All about it. Like in 1998 or whatever. You're like, yeah, actually it wasn't even for it because actually, can you believe Batman Begins came out and wasn't it like 19? Well, what year was that? Shoot. 2005. Okay. 2005. So uh, yeah. Longer ago than I thought. So yeah, maybe like 98 or 95 for Batman Forever. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, crazy. at the time, I remember loving him. But then um, I just think now that I know a little bit about the character from the comics, he's like nothing. I mean, he's he's more of like a Jason Todd figure almost. A little bit. Personality-wise. physically what we picture. Jason's a gymnast, slight, athletic, lean but strong, you know. Yeah. Kind of a lean dancer's body. Yeah. Pretty boy, Dick Grayson. pretty. Yeah, so that's what Laura, so yeah, Laura's into, uh, and what, um, do you just have for readers, maybe some author recommendations that we can put in the show notes? So like any, yeah, I can send you a list, but, um, anything by, um, okay, like Mickey Moo, M-I-K-I-M-O-O, um, Pentapus. Pentapus? Um, is that what it is? I don't know, but it's, it sounds better. P-E-N-T-A-P-U-S. <laughs> <laughs> Another one called Personologist. It's excellent. I think we both do a pretty good job, too, of bookmarking uh, yeah. the goodins. So Laura's bookmark list probably at least at least underscore 51. If I had to pick um, if I had to pick one to recommend, especially especially if you're like vaguely familiar with these characters, um, there's one called Strange Manor. It does involve time travel, but you get this Jason Todd era Bruce 
that somehow comes forward in time and um and he, oh. has, he has no um idea of because this is obviously before he's from before the death of jason todd there's a machine you don't need to know the fuller plot but there's basically a machine that's brought him in time to the manor present in the comics where you would have like uh tim or damien as robin yeah, Me. Tim Drake is the Robin after Jason Todd, the replacement to Robin, and Damian Wayne is Bruce's biological son. Right, but it just it's a, it, it can be like a plot device that allows a past Bruce to interact with a Jason that's come back from the dead, and there's and and because and this Bruce Wayne says, "Don't tell me what happened. We don't want to mess up the timeline." And he does, it's just like, oh my gosh, there's so much between them. It's super well written. It's so good. It's one of my favorite interactions between, there's there's a lot of friction between Jason and Bruce for obvious reasons. It's just excellently written. Um, it kind of pulls your heartstrings. And there's no romantic uh, pairing story about it if you're not interested in that. So um, that's actually probably one of my top picks. Yeah, it's a great character study. Yeah, yeah. the... Yeah, and just for readers, the the main kind of angst point, and you'll know this if you watch the movie Under the Red Hood, is that Jason's basically become somebody who uh, uses – who actually kills people, sort of. He'll he'll do what Batman wants. He only kills murderers and rapists and, like, child traffickers, kind of the nastiest of the nastiest. Yeah, Jason takes him down, and Bruce, if you know anything about him from the comics, the one thing that Batman actually doesn't do um, is kill people, which is why the Joker is still alive, which is the main point. The Joker is the one who murders Jason Todd, and Bruce does not uh, revenge Jason's death, and that's a big... A little bit annoying for Jason. Yeah, he he didn't appreciate that. He gets beaten to within an inch of his life with a crowbar, and he gets blown up in a warehouse... He comes back from the dead and he finds out that the Joker is still alive. What the fuck, Bruce? around Gotham and yeah, it's like, what the fuck? I think it's very human to agree with Jason that, you know, I know that Batman doesn't murder, but maybe just this once, like, just for this one, just for this one guy. Yeah. This is a character that has paralyzed Barbara Gordon, wreaked havoc in, in any number of ways, murdered all over Gotham. The the one character in Batman, you know, he beat a child within an inch of his life and then blew him up, you know, like, is, isn't this the one that we could murder? I think it's a very human reaction. Yeah, although I say, I will say, I like that if you ask fans, the I think the consensus or the explained reason that, I think he explains that maybe in the Under the Red Hood, mm-hmm. Bruce's own justification is that it isn't about justice at that point, it's about... If Bruce goes down that road, if he kills one, his own inner darkness is is barely controlled by the guise of Batman. And he thinks if he kills the Joker, then he's just going to start murdering everyone. Yeah, I think Jason's reaction would be, well, that's for you to deal with. But what a father would do, he like this idea that like you would burn the world down for your child. Yeah. Of course, Batman, he can't do that because Batman's more than just a father figure for these, you know, he's the protector of Gotham and that necessarily involves sacrifice and not doing things for himself or for his children. But at the same time as a parent or a parental figure, you know, you're supposed to want to burn the world down for your child. Yeah. All kinds of friction. It's yeah, it's very, 
most days I'm like, you should have just killed him. <laughs> yeah. Other days, I like, I get it, but. Yeah, I can understand from Bruce, but yeah, that's like the classic superhero kind of angst is the tension you get from trying to be, especially in a, re- yeah. a relationship with somebody or trying to be a reliable father or friend or mother, obviously. with Like I can't have other functional identities because. Like the world wants too much from the superhero yeah. guys. Yeah. And that means that it comes at the expense of the your personal relationships. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, well, so we'll put those recommendations up, but, uh, yeah. Can you talk about what you've been writing lately? Oh yeah, sure. What you've been into? Uh, as my Cobra Kai friends know, I haven't been around much, uh, because of all this Superman stuff. So, um, I have been on the side and it's nice cause we've been a, in a bit of a divide and conquer. So Laura's been all over the bat fam and she <laughs> tells me about all her favorite characters over there. And then I'm just digging into the world of Smallville and Superman and specifically Clark and Lex Luthor. So I have a I have a piece um, that I'm writing. I think it's about 50,000 words now. Um, it's getting yeah. a little out of hand because I feel like I was like, oh, I'll write. I always do this. I'm like, I'll write something that's nice and tightly written at 50,000 <laughs> words. And then I'm like, fuck, it's going to be another 100,000 word novel. <laughs> so we'll see. But it basically centers on um, – so in Smallville, you have the characters of – Clark Kent growing up and he has a friendship with Lex Luthor and it's a lot about sort of free will versus destiny because you know if you've read the comics that Lex Luthor is destined to become Superman's greatest enemy and they hate each other but they start off in this world as friends so there's that whole thing in the show of kind of a friends to enemies storyline that's Mm. interesting to pull off uh, to, to use that canon and then in the comics world Actually, I guess they do write him into Smallville. There's a character called uh, Connor Kent. You may know him as Con L or Superboy. Superboy. And it's the just the greatest, gayest uh, canon gift from the yeah. comic book writers. You find out it's actually real. You're like, what? It's real. So Connor doesn't have a mother. He has two genetic fathers. He is half yeah. Kryptonian. He is half of Clark Kent's DNA. Um, and, uh, there's different ways that he was created. One of the, one of the origins in comic books is that Lex Luthor was trying to create a genetic clone of Superman after the death of Superman, um, which is a story arc in DC where Superman is actually killed off and Lex doesn't really know what to do with himself after Superman Mm. is gone. So he creates this genetic clone of Superman so that he can kind of hopefully control, I think, and. Um, I don't know what his deal is, but like I had always heard of him, Superboy is a Superman clone, and then like in canon in the comics, you find out no, 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 he he really is just the he's the son of Clark because he's a combination of Clark's DNA and another person's DNA, and that's what a child is. Yeah, exactly. And that is kind of, as far as I understand, I think that was kind of retconned in maybe the early 2000s. So Superboy in some storylines was just a genetic clone of Clark Kent. And then mm-hmm. DC, I don't know what story arc, but they retconned it in, I think like 2003 that um, he's actually has two. Yeah. So he's not just a clone. He is actually, like Laura said, he's a kid with two parents, two genetic, <laughs> uh, two parts of his genome. So Clark and Lex. And the reason is that they, they explain this thing where like Lex was trying to clone 
uh, Superman, but the Kryptonian DNA was tough, so he had to stabilize it with human DNA, which is Lex's DNA. Lex is such a narcissist that he used his own DNA because what better yeah. can you get with the, the brawn of Superman and the intellect of Lex Luthor? <laughs> <laughs> so it's just like great but it you know so and i think that's what the comic people had in mind it was this big narcissistic thing from lex but it's also sort of this great like then fandom gets a hold of it and you're like excuse me excuse me that clark ken and lex luther have a genetic love, love child, child test tube baby <laughs> so so fan Amazing. fan fiction took that and uh and we've had Amazing. this now in canon for 20 years so there's plenty of connor luther, connor kent the Kent Luthor family, this blended family. Um, and some fakes have Connor being um, kind of breaking out of his laboratory and being raised by Clark and then later coming into uh, contact with Lex. And some there's a couple of them that actually Lex is raising Connor from, from a baby. And then it's him getting to know Clark, which is the angle I'm going for in mine. Yeah. Um, gosh, this is... Yeah, so that's that's a long explanation, but I wanted to do a Smallville-based fic that was about the uh, breakdown and then reconciliation of the friendship between Clark and Lex and will also be a romance, and also the story of Connor yeah. discovering his parent that he didn't know about and becoming Superboy. So yeah, and there's a there's a term in Smallville fic called uh, post rift, and basically in the show after about season five, Clark and Lex aren't friends anymore. And after season <laughs> seven, Lex actually tries to murder Clark, and then actually the show is sort of killed off and then resurrected. I don't know if I should say that. Yeah. But anyway, but it's oh, standard comic stuff. It's about five seasons too long. <laughs> it is a bit. Um. Yeah. Probably, or at least three seasons too long after Lex. After Michael Rosenbaum left the show, to me, there wasn't yeah. much reason to keep watching. I think the most valuable part of Smallville is, well, a couple things. Showing a French, a believable friendship between Clark and Lex, and then giving the, this Michael Rosenbaum version of a Lex Luthor that is, like, human, and that also has a believable arc towards, uh, you know, some someone who really, really hates Superman. Um, yeah. I think no, no one did for Lex Luthor what like Michael Rosenbaum's done for Lex Luthor. I think I love well, absolutely. But like to to flesh out that character more and give him an origin, I think Rosenbaum was excellent. Yeah, Clancy Brown was the voice of Lex Luthor in the Justice League and the Superman the Animated Series, and he's great. But yeah, what Rosenbaum did for that, Rosenbaum always is very um, self. Uh, what am I trying to say? He doesn't give himself enough credit. He's Which always is weird because <laughs> yeah, he's oh, poor things. Otherwise, he talks about himself a lot. But. Listen to his podcast inside of you with Michael yes. Rosenbaum. But um, he often says that Gene Hackman was the best Lex Luthor, but it's completely untrue. Uh, yeah. Gene Hackman's performance was fun, um, yeah. but it is nothing close to a human being the way yeah. that Rosenbaum made Lex a human being. And his performance, he, I think Rosenbaum and John Glover, who plays Lionel Luthor, the two of them are just. Far and away the best actors on the show. Although I love Annette O'Toole and um, John Schneider. Yeah, yeah, John Schneider's the, the also just brilliant casting. Oh, so good. And the main cast in general is just excellent. And yeah, they all really are. Show even more than it could have been. Yeah, sometimes I, I'm a little hard on Tom Welling, um, <laughs> but his character is like a Clark is just react. Tom Welling always talks about in every scene. Clark is usually just 
being given information and then he has to react to it. He steps behind. As unbelievable as it looks, he's he is a teenager. <laughs> yeah. I actually think Tom Welling does an excellent job. It's it's like the material you're given sometimes. Like the plot I mean the plots that the actors have to wade through sometimes you're just like, wow, that's that's rough. But um <laughs> other you know, I don't think he's quite on like I think the emotional intelligence and acting that you get from Rosenbaum is better, but I actually think it would be hard to play Clark Kent because he's such milk toast. Like, you know, like he's just, he's just Clark Kent. The boys. Yeah. But to, to make him like this believable teenager that's going through a lot, I think he did an excellent job. Yeah. And I think he, the Clark in the show, the, and the Clark that he sort of grows up to be the Superman that we know who has such a solid moral center, almost yeah. to the point of uh, self-righteousness. Um, yes. Yes. Really comes from Jonathan Kent. So yeah. you can see the influence that Jonathan Kent has on Clark. And that plays into my story and a lot of Connor Kent's stories is that this kind of uh, tale of two families with the Luthors and the Kents is that – and it is a bit of a Romeo and Juliet again with Clark and Lex because they're they're both trying to be friends when their families are like – instilling in them these philosophies that are just not compatible at all. And Jonathan especially has a a real deep disdain for the Luthor family. And Lionel just teaches Lex that, he, you know, he withholds all love and affection. Yeah, he just – he withholds love and affection. And he his imprint on Lex of, like, what a family is and what a father is is just so twisted yeah. and <laughs> – and Lex knows that, like, he wants to – that's the attraction of the Kents is that he wants a real family. And all that Lex has yeah. ever wanted – and that's the center of this – the fan fiction that I'm writing, too, is that, uh, you know, Lex is always searching for family connection. And he didn't get that growing up, so um, – <laughs> Clark lied more often than Lex did. Yeah. He really so – You're like, geez, Clark, lying all the time. Oh, every episode you see, like – Especially in the it's painful in the first couple of seasons because yeah, Lex is he's not good at it. No, he's terrible, and you know that Lex lets him off the hook so many. Like he can tell he's lying, yeah. but Lex at that point I think is so and kind of enamored with the idea of Clark and a friend. You find out later there's some comments that Lex makes in later seasons that he's never had a real friend before, and you yeah. can kind of tell he's like this 21 year old. Uh, making friends with this like fourteen year old kid, and you're like, mm, that's a little desperate. Yeah, because Tom Welling was definitely fourteen. Like, <laughs> crazy. like so stupid. Like, Talk about suspension of disbelief. Five year old playing a fifteen. Well, yeah, like fourteen or fifteen, he'd be a um, high school freshman. That's yeah, mean, yeah. Oh, so CW. Yeah. So anyway, but yeah, the lying uh, thing, especially painful in the early seasons when Lex was trying to be good. Yeah. But, and actually, just to tie it back to Cobra Kai for a second, the the um, so it's kind of that opposite from um, where in Cobra Kai you have this trend from enemies to friends. So it's the opposite <laughs> with Clark and Lex, friends to enemies. Yeah. Um, and there's just if you look at the connection between uh, Daniel and Johnny, where their friction comes from, I don't know. It's like this, just the way that things played out didn't allow for a friendship that maybe could have existed otherwise. Um, yeah. And there's, so there's still this like rivalry and anger over the way things went or the bullying and the tournament. Yeah. With Clark and Lex, it's a real deep bitterness over the way that things 
turned out and they shouldn't have right. turned out that way. Yeah, because they had like they had it and then yep. like tossed away. Yeah, it feels like wasted and uh there's I think Lex has a real just sourness and not and Lex wasn't innocent. I mean he in the show he he goes dark. I mean he starts sure. like experimenting on people in labs. Yeah. I mean and that's Clark's greatest fear is that he would be yeah. uh objectified into a lab subject for somebody like Lionel Luther or Lex Luther. Yeah. So and for sure. For sure. And there's some stuff that goes down with Lex and Lana. You know, Clark is in love with Lana, and then Lex takes advantage of that later on. And there's a romance there that's a real dark, strange romance. And Lex totally screws Lana over. Um, So he does terrible things. (laughs) He is an asshole, but... But he didn't start out that way. Yeah. You could even see the Kent kind of driving Lex towards it, because if you remember in season one... Clark has this ruthless um, police detective after him, Nixon. Oh, yeah. Remember that? And he's threatening to expose Clark, and he's blackmailing Jonathan Kent. And Nixon and Kent uh, get into this fight, and Nixon pulls a – let's see. Nixon pulls a gun on Jonathan Kent, and then Lex shows up. As far as we know, Lex has never killed anyone before, and he shoots Nixon – for basically for Clark and Jonathan, he like saves the day by murdering. And there's actually a few episodes later where Lex gets into a suspicion that he's um, tried to kill Lionel and Clark shows up at the office and is like, why were you arguing with your dad the night before he died? And there's this implication that Clark is saying, did you kill your father? And Lex says something like, are you saying that I might've killed my father? And then Clark says, it's not like you haven't done it before. And and Lex says, "Uh, you should get out of here before you say something we'll both regret or something like that. And he kicks Clark out. And there's a lot. And that that is the right. Like, I don't know if Clark would really say that, but the writers have him saying that. And that's the roots of like why. I think the writers initially did such a good job building that friendship that they really had to do some some arm pulling. How do we ruin this? Bad writing is how we ruin this. I don't know. Yeah, at some points, it's like a little unbelievable. It's such a great show, and sometimes it's such a terrible show. Like, yeah. But you can justify some of that by remembering that Clark was a kid and that um, yeah. he was really scared and his parents instilled a lot of that fear in him. Yeah. So anyway, God, that's a long answer. But yeah, I'm working on the Smallville <laughs> fix, so sorry I haven't been around. It's going to be awesome, though. I am very excited for it. Yeah, very, I hope so. I really kind of want to finish it before I start posting and um, – you know, it's nothing like <laughs> the Smallville fandom is nothing like the energy and attention that the Cobra Kai fan fandom yeah. is going through right now. So I'll probably post it and it'll get no comments, but that's okay. Whatever. Whatever. I'll get your comments, Laura. Yeah, I'll I'll use <laughs> it at least. Yeah. Um. But anyway, yeah. Anything else on Batman Superman world? Um. Um. No, I would say like I. I've watched Titans and I've enjoyed it enough to keep going on it. Obviously most DC fans have certain issues with it, but it's good enough for me to keep going on it. And then actually a series that's really surprised me is that 30 years old and I uh, read comic books and watch, I started watching young justice, which is uh, an animated series. Also not really a children's cartoon. I'd say it's like, Teenage it up probably, but it's actually been surprisingly very good. Amazon Prime? 
It's actually all the CC stuff is uh, been moved to HBO Max. Um, so I think the only with subscription you, way to watch it is HBO Max. You can purchase it on Prime, which is what I initially did, but then there's three seasons available on HBO Max, and it's uh, I found out they will get a fourth season apparently. So, but the writing is actually excellent. It's got character development. Um, there's years that go by with these characters that you like time skips that you get to see these characters grow in particular Dick Grayson season one starts out with him as Robin. And then uh, by season two, five years have gone by. You get to see him as a mature Nightwing. And then season thir- three, I think another couple years have gone by, but anyway, it's uh, surprisingly very good. At least surprising for me for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. Cart- the animated series uh, from DC and, they're like real movies. All the animated stuff from DC is like way better than you'd think. Mm-hmm. Versus, I, mean, I haven't even touched Marvel. I've never been interested in Marvel for some reason. I don't watch any of those films. But um, what you tend to hear is that Marvel gets their live action movies right and DC gets their animated movies right. Mm-hmm. The other way around. So I don't know. Yeah, I wasn't a fan of the Snyder verse stuff for sure. It's it's yeah, I hate dark and depressing. All of that. I never yeah. thought I'd hate a Kevin Costner film because I'm a weird, huge Kevin Costner fan girl. But I didn't <sighs> him as Jonathan Kent. He just basically played Kevin Costner. Well, but with weird Snyder, um, depressing dialogue. Yeah. Like yeah, the death scene was super weird. And after, honestly, after you've had John Schneider as Jonathan Kent, there's like no one else in this universe that could be Jonathan Kent. He's so I good. think Costner could have done a great job, but the the, the writing was yeah. such like do you? I always bring this up. Do you remember the scene where it's a flashback from the Man of Steel when Clark is saving a bus full of children from? Yeah, yeah, and he's like, you should have done that, basically. Like, yeah, there he's he kind of gets noticed, you know, that he's lifting this bus up. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, somebody calls the Kents or something, and then. Jonathan takes Clark out to the back to have this talk with him. And uh, Clark's, you know, he's like, you need to be careful, son. And Clark's like, what was I supposed to do? Let the children drown? And you know what he he says? Maybe. I don't know. You know, and it's kind of this philosophical thing, but it's like. Yeah. Like like 20 children on that bus that like survived because of Clark. So I think even in Smallville, there's some scene where I can't remember. Maybe it's just fan fiction, but. Um, I don't. I think John Schneider's Kent as bullheaded and horrible to Lex as he was. Yeah. He would have never told Clark to put his secret over saving someone's life. He's always stressing like you really need to be careful. You really can't tell anybody. People won't understand. At the same time, if someone needs saving, you know, like you have to do it. Yeah, that's part of Jonathan Kent's like moral uh, compass yeah. that is too concrete sometimes, but. So I, I thought that in The Man of Steel in general, that philosophy that was just totally yeah, wrong for it. Jonathan Kent and for Clark. And it's just too dark yeah. of a movie for me. Uh, and some people think that Zack Snyder's brought so much to the this kind of happy, shiny Superman universe that some people say is like too positive. But um, I don't think so. I, th- I don't understand Superman. <laughs> yeah, you can have plenty of moral uh, dilemma and ambiguity and uh, angst in Superman without making it this like Ayn Rand, Atlas Shrugged kind of like yeah. dystopian philosophy. <laughs> and everything's also washed out. Yeah. <laughs> I think that there's a similar thing for me with like different takes on Batman and partly why we, we never see like Robin in the movies is because it's kind of hard to portray and explain a man that would send children in, into battle with mm. him. But 
I hope someone gets it right someday because there are people like me who believe that Robin is needed for Batman. But um, I mean, even in the Nolan verses, as much as I like, I do like those films in general, but um, sometimes I think there are adaptions that get lost and DC comics will do this too. Like some of the fandom complain, like he's Bruce Wayne, he's dark, but he's not people like Batman. We don't think he's a psychopath. (laughs) And uh, he's not like, he doesn't have to be like, he's got to be a dark character. But he doesn't have to be as dark as like in the like in the comics he'll like you'll see him like slapping Dick Grayson or punching Jason and you know, and it's just it's like why does he have to you don't have to be that like he can have human affection in him and it just it depends on who's writing him what direction they go with it it's kind of an issue I think I don't know especially in fandom it seems like like we want we want Bruce basically to be in some ways a good dad even though he's emotionally constipated emotionally unavailable he's got all kinds of issues but it doesn't mean he's got to be a total dick yeah you can still have a dark Batman who's battling his inner demons and using those inner demons in this guise as a nightmarish figure toward criminals but he can still come home to it doesn't have to be fluffy but he can still come home to the manor and he's got He's a father, you know, he's got kids, like you said. Yeah. So I think Bruce Wayne as a father figure is hugely appealing yeah. to people. Like you said, even if he's like makes the bad decisions and isn't like the best dad all the time, he's still the thing about the Robins is like they're all kids who who needed guidance and needed yeah. a parental figure. And the fact that like Dick Grayson will never grow up to be Bruce Wayne. And that is a testament to Bruce Wayne that he allowed Dick to uh, pursue his own kind of justice. It like, I don't know, it allowed him to become something a lot less dark than Bruce kind of had to go through. Yeah. And, and just also Batman's, you know, sticking to his guns where he doesn't kill people. Like that's a canon testament to the fact that at heart he is a hero, even if he's yeah. a dark hero, like he's, he's yeah. not out there murdering people. So um, yeah, kind of the Frank yeah. Miller, just dark, 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 dark Batman. Yeah, very, uh, well, critically well received. I I have had trouble with the Frank Miller Batman stuff. Yeah, which I know that actually the Frank Miller Batman I think was a big inspiration for Snyder's Batman, which I actually like. I don't mind uh, Ben Affleck totally yeah. as I don't hate him either. Like I th- I was surprised. I thought I would hate him. Yeah, I don't hate him, but at the same time, I've always thought there's no one that has ever played Batman live action that has done justice to the world's greatest detectives. Like no one ever. That's true. They're, they're all lacking in some way. In, in my opinion, like those they're all just like beefy, they've got a bunch of gadgets. They depressed, but that's about it. Yeah. I think uh, Kevin Conroy is the voice of Batman. The animated series is the best portrayal of Batman. Probably. I am the knife. Yeah. So good. <laughs> Kevin Conroy is amazing. I love him, but yeah, that Batman versus Superman, we watched that together with our, fr- our best friend and we all three thought it was a total mess. Did we even make it through? No, I, I think we skipped a bunch. We didn't make it through. No, it yeah. just didn't make any sense. So I know a lot of some people enjoyed that film. I thought it was a total fucking mess, story wise. And I I love Henry Cavill as an actor. Yeah, and he's like the most Superman looking Superman you can get. Yeah. Um, but the script uh, to me just totally ruined his chance because you know he's got like he's got no personality in that movie, and you know that Henry Cavill has charisma because if you've ever seen the movie um uh the man from uncle i was about to say man from uncle. oh my god as napoleon um something he's brilliant in that and he's so he's like a cross between james bond and austin powers but really smart yeah. and funny 
and yes. uh, and sort of melancholy on a level. Um, but he's so, such a great actor, and they could have been such a great Superman. But for me personally, I thought Man of Steel was just a total bungle and a waste of Henry Cavill's talent. It looks like a Zack Snyder movie. I mean, it's just washed out and depressing, and and there's so much um, personal like destruction of the cities. I mean, every 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 uh, superhero movie has that, but so many people die, and I don't know. I suppose that's what they were going for is like realism. Like if Superman and Zod actually did get into a tumble. We've had the gritty realism and I, you know, I totally applaud it. But then it gets to the point where you you have no color in these movies anymore. Literally, like, there's no color. Oh, Michael Shannon is probably the best. That's the only success Fuck, of those he's movies. So, he's like, awesome. Michael Shannon is amazing in anything. That's the only thing I like about that movie. I didn't even particularly like Diane Lane. And who doesn't like, I mean, I love Diane Lane, but. She's not a net O'Toole, apparently, so. As Martha Kent, yeah. Whatever. I don't know. Yeah, and I thought the uh, the Lois Lane, also another great actress. Um, oh, Amy Adams? Yeah, great actress, terrible Lois. Yeah, I think this is the most generic. It's like, insert female reporter. Yeah, Lois Lane is like a chain-smoking, coffee-guzzling. Yeah. I, I mean, my other problem is, like, he doesn't really play a good Clark Kent. Not really, anyway. He plays an excellent, like, Cavill plays excellent... Believable Superman, but can he play Clark Kent? Not really. And bland, attractive female reporter, kind of nosy, kind of bitchy. That you know that what we need from Lois Lane. But um, uh, Dana Delaney is my only Lois Lane I've ever liked. Actually, also, uh, she's the animated voice. Uh, oh yeah, series uh, Superman. I liked I liked Margot Kidder. She's not bad. I remember Mom always hated Margot Kidder for some reason, but actually, yeah, actually, she's pretty good. I think because in some ways Lois Lane. Is kind of annoying. Like she's just she's supposed to be annoying. Reporters are kind of annoying people. I mean, their 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 business is to be nosy, and so I think I'll always kind of find Lois a little annoying. But yep. <laughs> I I think you're right. I think Margaret Kidder did actually a pretty good job. Yeah, and I think uh, as much as like nostalgia as Smallville fans have for you know Clark and Lana is like just the most nostalgic sweet thing you can think of, and. But my favorite relationship is probably between Clark and Lex. But Erica Durance as Lois in Smallville, Actually, yeah, good. sufficiently snarky. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. You know, I know that the CW couldn't have her smoking, but they have Lois kind of addicted to Nicorette gum. <laughs> Nicorette She's gum, always got yeah. a pack in her purse, which my dad chews Nicorette. He's been chewing Nicorette gum for like twenty years. Yeah. So you can sure. definitely get you know just. Uh, that's a definitely a habit that people have. You don't have to quit nicotine. No, you can just keep get forever. all that nice nicotine hit in your brain without all the nasty tobacco. Yeah, yeah, but she she was. I mean, it, it's it would be hard to come out of that show, and everyone already, already loves Lana Lang. But uh, I thought she was great. She, yeah, two two Lois Lanes I can stand for yep. sure. No Amy Adams, no Kate Bosworth. Bosworth may be even worse than Amy Adams. Ooh, for me. I would still put she, Amy Adams below Bosworth. Both of them were like blight. Like just like oh female reporter, yeah. She, I cut. She brings her child onto onto a boat to like pursue a story. Yeah, that was wildly wildly. Who's crashing the like the power grid? And it's like obviously this is sketchy. Like why are you taking your child? But the plot needed it, Laura. Even Marsden was a more interesting character in that show than the Lois Lane character. That's I don't know. I should be talking. I'm just gonna insult. Yeah, we're just complaining at this point. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay though. But apparently, uh, the Justice League movie has a recut, 
which is called the Snyder Cut coming up. So I'll probably mm-hmm. get a little drunk and just make myself watch that. Maybe I'll be pleasantly surprised. I don't know. I don't know if I can. The Wonder Woman was certainly much better than the, yeah. Gal Gadot, all hats off to her. Great, she's awesome. Yeah, so maybe she can salvage that movie. I like Chris Pine. I like her. They got chemistry, but other than that, I didn't even really like the Wonder Woman movie. So maybe. <laughs> A negative person who <laughs> may ever love animated characters. Just stick to cartoons, Laura. Yeah. It's always done better. I don't know why. Yeah. Yeah. You have more freedom in animated stuff, I think. I guess so. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> we'll wrap that up because we've been talking way too long. But, um, yeah. 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 Good luck editing this. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's going to be it's gonna be a whole thing. <laughs> but, um, yeah. L- Laura, thanks for talking fanfic with me today. The problem. Nerd <laughs> time. It was probably tired of me. It's cool. It's cool. All right. Well, we'll see you next time. Okay. Thank you. <laughs>